afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My guest today is Kara Hunter. Kara is the author of the Sunday Times best-selling novels Close to Home and In the Dark, featuring Detective Inspector Adam Fowley and his Oxford-based police team. I spoke with Kara in the slightly creepy confines of the Pitt Rivers Anthropology Museum in Oxford, England. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. So for our listeners, we are here in the Pitt Rivers Museum, which features in uh, your first book, yep. right? Um, yep. Which is not the one we're going to talk about today, but <laughs> it is it is a bizarre and slightly creepy place <laughs> that I would commend to anybody who comes to Oxford. Um, I, I've never been in a room that was so full of stuff, I think, is this one. Not even my own library. <laughs> <laughs> it's an extraordinary place. Uh, and as we were saying as we arrived, it's a, it's a museum about how museums have evolved. Yeah, um, exactly. And uh, the way that everything is organized just has to be seen to be believed in these tiny little labels and original um, 19th century handwriting telling you what you're looking at. Um, it's well worth going and, and googling and having a look online at how yeah. the things are are displayed because it's it's really it's quite spectacular. So there's a reason that we're standing here in the middle of Oxford um, and that is that you have set your books in what is one of my favorite cities. It's a city I've written about both in fiction and non-fiction and there's a great um, sort of history of books being set in Oxford. What, what made you want to be part of that history? Why did you, I mean, I know you live in Oxford, mm. but why did you particularly want to set your books here? I suppose most of it is living here. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's that old adage, isn't there, about write what you know. Um, so it is an extraordinary place to live. And I feel very lucky to live here because it's uh, it's very vibrant for a very small town. And there's yeah. a lot going on. Like, like most university cities, there's lots of different communities. And some of them are transient. So, you know, academics come and go, students come and go. Yeah. A lot of young people, which gives it a lot of energy. But I think particularly here as well, um, it's got the very interesting sort of overlapping communities, uh, both geographical right, right. and, if you like, social. So you have the academic community, you have um, uh, obviously people who live and work here, and there's a big industrial plant on the outskirts of the city as well. And you've got these different communities around, ringed around the centre, so you go North Oxford, which is quite leafy, quite prosperous, and then you've got the Cowley Road, which is much more dynamic, much more d- diverse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have all these overlapping um, circles, if you like, and it's where the overlaps are that you get the interesting things starting to arise and, and possibility for stories. And then, of course, I don't think, I'm not sure this has worked into your books yet. I'm sure it will be. <laughs> um, but then you have these, you have the tourists, you have people, yeah. you, you yeah, have, yeah. you're a city that, that has... A, almost a different group of people in every day. Yeah, and especially in the summer. I yeah. mean, the summer, the places, as you can imagine, like all, all tourist uh, tourist attractions, it's, it's heaving. Um, so yes, it, it's a very diverse city. I mean, I'm now quite used to walking around and not hearing English for, say, 15 minutes. Sure, uh, sure. So it's, yeah. It, it, yeah. it's really an interesting place from that point of view. Yeah. Uh, do you think there's... So Oxford is a place that's, I think, 
you've proven and many other writers have proven that it's a very suitable place to set a book because of a lot of the reasons that you set. But is it also particularly suited to the setting of a crime novel? Is there something about Oxford that makes us think, hmm, what's going on under the surface here? <laughs> I think we've got uh, Colin Dexter to thank for that, haven't we? Um, it's one of the crime capitals of the world from, from that point of view. Uh, and yes, I mean, obviously anyone now setting a book in Oxford, especially a crime book, there's always going to be a nod back to Colin Dexter and uh, what he did to, to, to sort of, as it were, sort of burn an image of the of the town into people's uh, right, consciousness. Right. So, uh, for someone like me coming along behind, then I, I, it's a great gift because I don't have to describe the city, the centre part of the city anyway. Everyone knows what it looks yeah. like, so I can take that for granted, and I can also focus on those other parts of the city that we were just talking about. Yeah. Um, but I have got a couple of little nods uh, to Dexter in the book, sort of fun <laughs> ones. Um, one of my characters, a female detective, her surname is Summer, which is spelled S-O-M-E-R, mm-hmm. which is an anagram of Morse, <laughs> which is appropriate for, for Morse being a, you know, I did a, cross, not notice that. a crossword well guy. Yeah, so, yes, yeah. That, and her initial is E as well. So yeah, there's, yeah. It's, a, it's a sort of a smile from me to him, if you like. And, a, yeah. and by way of a thank you, I yeah. suppose. <laughs> When I walk around Oxford um, as, as a Lewis Carroll enthusiast and a vict- student of the Victorian, I see, I mean, when I stand in this space that we're in right now, I see Samuel Wilberforce, I see Thomas Huxley, you know, I mm. walk around, I see Lewis Carroll, I see... But Tolkien what, as well, What do you see? And Tolkien, of course, is coming to the big screen. C.S. Lewis, uh, uh, yes, all what, of them. What do you see when you walk around Oxford? Do you see the, you know, bodies? Or, <laughs> you know, um, I think I see potential, definitely. Yeah. Um, I see potential. It, it's... As I say, it's just an, um, a place with so much energy that, that any sort of energy will eventually produce um, the sorts of th- things that are the basis for a story. So mm. we'll say drama starts in conflict, don't we? So um, I think energy is the fuel for any sort of story. And yes, I suppose it is a city full of full of writing. Uh, and in that sense, yeah, it's, it's an yeah. inspirational place to be. It's also very, very good for your ego because you know you can't just go into a party and say, "Oh well, I'm a writer," because everybody in the in the room is a writer, <laughs> and some of them are doubtless much more famous than you are. <laughs> Do you have particular places? I mean, we're in we're in a place that I think is slightly less well known to the Oxford tourist, which mm. is the Pitt Rivers Museum. It's sort of um, an annex of the more well known Natural History Museum. Are there other places, sort of less well known spots in Oxford, that are favourites of yours? Um, just for me as a person, one of my favourites is um, the Sheldonian Theatre, which is very mm, famous, yeah. um, which is for people who don't know exactly what I'm, I mean just from the name. It's that very famous semicircular frontage, which has the emperor's heads all right. the way around the front. Right. Now, that's the famous bit. The bit I love is the back. Mm-hmm. If you walk around the back, uh, you've got the most amazing piece of, uh, sort of sort of place of architecture, actually, where the back of the Sheldonian is, is a stunning Palladian facade. Yeah. You could be in the middle of, of Tuscany or Rome, mm-hmm. uh, and behind you, you have the Bodleian, the Bodleian yeah. wonderful Gothic yeah. facade. Yeah. Um, and you can see across to the Bridge of Sighs, and it's the most stunning little tiny space, and most people don't go there. Yeah. But every time I, I have visitors who haven't been to the city before, or even if they have, I, I always take them there. Well, if you sort of peek out around behind that, you can see this almost Tudor-esque facade of Blackwell's bookshop, too. Exactly. So you've so got it all you've got right there. All of, this, yes. all of this beautiful architecture in this tiny one space. So let's start to talk about the new novel a little bit. The new Oxford crime novel is called In the Dark. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about the crime that's discovered at the beginning of this book. Yes, um, it 
um, is inspired as quite a lot of my books are, or at least takes its jumping off point um, as from, a, from a real life uh, crime. Mm-hmm. In this case, the, the case of uh, Joseph Fritzl in Austria. Right. Uh, though, of course, I know there have been other terrible similar cases in America, particularly sure. in, in, in Cleveland. Um, and in that case, um, Fritzl imprisoned his daughter uh, for many years in a specially constructed underground basement. I mean, it, 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 the mind boggles uh, the, the horror of it. Um, and had various children by her as well. Uh, so this idea of the captive in the cellar has become yeah. something of a trope now. Yeah. Um, so my book starts uh, in a in that leafy North Oxford suburb yeah. we were just yeah. talking about, yeah. a huge Victorian house, of which there are many up there. And uh, a young woman and a very small child are discovered in the basement. Mm-hmm. Um, and the house is quite run down, owned by a very old man who is clearly suffering from Alzheimer's. And he claims he's never seen them before. Yeah. It's a, it's a fascinating start, and I also love the fact that they're discovered almost by accident. Yeah. There's a construction that's going on next door, and yes. there's a problem with the wall in the basement, and suddenly yeah. they think, there's somebody on the other side of that yeah. wall. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I've heard a lot of discussion. I've had this discussion with other authors. I've had this discussion with my editors about to prologue or not to prologue. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, oh, yes. You, you do start out with, with a prologue, mm. um, it, which as I think is good for many sort of crime novel prologues, we don't quite understand the context of until much, yeah. much later. That's a but, teaser. <laughs> but why did you choose to, to start that way? I always do. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, it, I don't think with a, with a crime novel I would ever start any other way. I mean, all of them have, have done that. I, I really do like setting up a, a tease at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it does, it can sort of set up a, an atmosphere for the book as well, which uh, I think it's actually quite important. It's almost like a signpost to the reader of the sort of book this is going to be. I mean, the other thing about the beginning, which I particularly love within the dark, is it's set on May morning. Yes, and, and I was, was going to talk to you about yeah, that. Yeah, for, yeah. Uh, for anyone um, like you who, who knows their Oxford, it's a very special time of the year. It's a bit balmy. It's a bit bonkers, to yeah. be honest. I mean, yeah. we, have, we, we have the, the choir boys on the top of, of Magdalen Tower singing the, the morning in, in a, right. in a sort of right, rather pagan sort of a way. And then we have the bells and we have the prayers and there are about uh, 10,000 people in the street beneath them at dawn to, to watch them and listen to them. And there are people who've been up all night and there are people doing Morris dancing yeah. and it's totally crazy and it's completely Oxford and it's got that really strange vibe because people are wandering around first thing in the morning with flowers in their hair, um, and that's when this this crime is discovered. Right. So it sort of it sort of tallies into this. This is this can't be happening. This this can't be real. So I deliberately set it on May the first for that reason. I, I was going to ask you about that. I I learned about May morning from Holman Hunt's painting, you know, of the uh, choir boys yes. on the top of Magdalen Tower, <laughs> and I was like, what's what's going on? But but this is this has gone on in Oxford for. Donkey's ears. Who knows how long? I, right. I don't know when it right. started. Um, um, they, they were certainly doing it when I was an undergraduate here. They didn't have um, a, sound, a sound system, a loudspeaker then, so you could never hear the yeah. choir boys. Well, I mean, Holman Hunt's painting in the second half of the 19th century, so I know it was going on then. Mm. But, um, but yeah, it's a unique sort of thing it, to Oxford. It's uniquely and, and so. Oxford, and it, it sort of it captures that, that spirit of the city, really, that everyone comes together. Yeah. The, the uh, completely random overlapping groups of people are all there, and you've got the police all having a bit of a laugh, and you've got people selling you know burgers from vans. and it, It's a really, really strange but wonderful thing, and it just captures Oxford for And me, is this really. something, do you go down and listen to the, to the choir boys? Yeah. Sometimes, yes. <laughs> it depends whether it falls at a weekend or Right, them. right, yeah. <laughs> You start the novel, um, you, you use both the first person and the third person. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I will admit, I read your second novel first, so mm -hmm. it took me it took me a minute to kind of figure out who who yeah. this first person was. I think yeah. if I'd read the first one first, um, although they are certainly the novel standalone, I think. Yes. Um, but tell yes. tell us about your first person, the one character who actually speaks to us in in the first person. Yes, this is the central detective uh, mm -hmm. Adam Forley, um, who I am obviously become rather fond of now, having <laughs> written four books about him now. Um, but yes, I I really like the ability to have two different um, types of narrative. So the third person narrative, uh, where we see the members of his team um, carrying out the investigation. Sometimes we see him as well. We see him, yep. as it were, yep. through their eyes, which I quite like. I don't overdo that, uh, but I do like to be able to just every now and again pop him into those scenes. But mostly we're hearing things from, from his point of view. He's talking to us directly. He, I, I think he has quite an interesting personality. He's got a very dry sense of humour. Um, he's also got a, a, a terribly tragic event in his past, mm -hmm. um, yeah. quite recent past, which makes him all the more sensitive to some of the sorts of crimes that we are we are talking about yeah. in the books. Um, but I, I did deliberately I didn't want him to be the sort of typical maverick, you know, right, hard drinking, right, right. jazz loving. Um, he's he's not that sort of person at all. He's um, very much in love with his wife, yeah, uh, and this yeah. this personal tragedy, which is no fault of theirs, uh, is threatening um, that love, and and that's one of the things that gets explored through the series. And it, and it, to a certain extent, it threatens parts of his career. There's some of these yeah. cases, people say, well, given what's happened in your life, are you really the person who ought to be Absol on this case? Absolutely, and and he often has to fight his corner on that um, though because we have uh, sort of private access to his mind we, right. we know that actually he is quite vulnerable yeah. Um, yeah. and you know, he, he does need to be careful and how he how he thinks about these crimes and how he handles them so I'm curious about I mean I've, I've written novels but I've not written a crime thriller mm -hmm. um, how, how do you begin do you begin in the mind of of the criminal, you know everything that's happened, you know how it's all played out. Do you begin in the mind of the investigator? You you only know what the reader knows on the first page. What, what do you know at the beginning of the novel? I know the twist. You know the twist. I okay. know the twist. <laughs> I start with the twist. But you have a lot of twists. I do so. have a lot of twists. <laughs> but there's always one biggie at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if you've read the first one, again, I'm not going to give anything no, no, away. No, no, no spoilers here. No spoilers, don't worry. But if you read the first one close to home, um, that started with the twist. Um, and uh, it just came to me on a beach in the Caribbean, which is a sort of wonderful moment where my, you know, my brain was having some downtime. Uh, but I, I remember listening to Sophie Hanna um, talking at a, a festival, and she said, uh, she was actually talking about Agatha Christie yeah, as well yeah. because of course she's written some continuation Poirot books and she was saying that you, the, the really great twists in crime fiction you can get down to four words mm. wow. and, and she used the two examples from Agatha Christie one being Murder on the Orient Express right. yeah, which the is, famous one yeah. they all did it right. <laughs> that's four words yep. and the other one which is one of my favourite Christie's which is the murder of Roger Ackroyd mm -hmm. uh, the narrator did it. Yeah. Uh, so if you, she said, if you can get yourself a four-word twist, you're onto something. And the first book, Close to Home, yeah. is a four-word yeah. twist. I just say, well, as we're sitting here talking in Oxford, my wife is at home, finishing closer. <laughs> She's probably getting into that twist right about now, and going, "Oh my gosh, I can't wait till he gets home so I can talk to him about this." <laughs> oh, that's music to my ears. Thank um, you. <laughs> I, I love the way you use uh, documentary storytelling. Mm -hmm. Tell the readers about some of the kinds of documents that you include yeah. in the novel and why you find that an effective way to, pre to 
present mm -hmm. the story or present information? It started with close to home, actually, because, uh, and, and it wasn't sort of a thought through thing at that point, but what I realized with uh, the story is about a missing child. Mm -hmm. A little yeah. girl disappears yeah. from her family's barbecue. No one can understand how they could possibly have lost a child in the middle of a family party, but they do. Um, and I realized straight away that one of the things about that story uh, and one of the things about a story like that that happens in real life is it's going to be played out in the public domain. Right, right. Especially these days, especially with social media, um, th there is always going to be uh, a public reaction uh, to a story like that. Immense public reaction in some of the very well-known cases we've had. And at some point, that public reaction can actually start becoming part of the story itself. Right. It can start influencing how the, the investigation is being carried out. People are under pressure. People can start um, yeah, doing the most appalling trolling you know, campaigns oh, yeah. online, which yeah. are just appalling if you go and look at what people are prepared to say. So I knew that was going to be part of this story. And that was the point when I realized, well, one of the good things I could do with this, which would be interesting and would explore that angle, would be to bring those voices inside the book. Yeah. yeah. So we do have sections which are tweets about. Um, yeah, in the first novel, you have on. these sort of strings of tweets. Strings of tweets that... where people who are more or less informed, most of them less informed. Yeah. Um, but that then led me to think about other ways, other voices I could bring in, other types of material that would illuminate the story. And so I've now developed this style, which I really yeah. love, which yeah. is I bring in all sorts of things. So I bring in interview transcripts, I bring in news feeds. The second book, we have a, a video uh, transcript of a, of a TV program. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I had great fun going back and, uh, and on the internet and, and looking at how uh, production companies actually set out their scripts. Right, so right. it actually does look like a script yeah, for a yeah. TV program. Um, uh, in the, the uh, second one, we have a crime scene drawing. That's one of my favorites because yeah, that really yeah, yeah. helped me to sort of understand how that whole basement of that house was was mm. arranged. Which, in, in, you know, in the case of a crime novel, is it's more than just oh, you can imagine this space. You kind of need to know the details of it so you can. Yeah you can try to guess what happened. Yeah, know? absolutely. Uh -huh. And that's exactly it. You put your finger on it. I want people to do the detection themselves. Right, right. Uh, and I think if you give them documents and transcripts, um, they, they've got as much chance as the police to work out what happened. And in fact, in some cases, certainly in the first book where we have flashbacks, they've got more chance yeah, because yeah. they're getting information the police never the police get. Don't have, yeah, um, yeah. But I, you know, I love doing those. And that, that uh, drawing that you like uh, was actually done by a proper crime scene investigator. Oh, that's great. He actually yeah. drew it for me. Yeah. And he, he did all the annotations exactly the way he would if he was on, on a real crime yeah, scene, yeah. which I loved. I, mean, I was having a complete geek <laughs> moment at that point. <laughs> there was a great series um, that came out, I think in the 1940s or 50s. I used to be an antiquarian bookseller and I ran across these a couple times. And it was called, I think it was called Crime File. Oh, okay. And it would be, you, the, instead of being sort of a published hardcover book, it was like this sort of notebook it was nothing but the documents. Wow. And then in the back, there was a sealed envelope that had the solution to the crime. Oh, and so you had to, it was a very clever way oh, to present a murder mystery. That. Yeah, I yeah. love um, that. <laughs> but uh, so do you think that using all that different sort of, all those different sort of documents, does it, does it get at, and you sort of hinted at this when you talked about the Twitter, does it get at the fact that as a society now, we, we receive our information and our misinformation in so many different ways? I think that's part of it. I don't think I did that consciously, but perhaps you're right. It's part. It's a reflection of how I feel crime is is 
sort of part of our consciousness now that that we all feel we have our own access to the facts and our own right to have an opinion about them. Um, though we, we may not know at all. Well, I mean, that's one of the things I wanted to dramatise in the book, that a lot of the people who are making all these comments have absolutely no idea what's going on and they couldn't possibly yeah. um, be entitled to have the opinion that they have because, right. Right. and certainly even less to actually broadcast it because they just don't know what's going on and I think it is quite a salutary lesson about um, as a species I often feel we've been given this shiny new toy yeah. called social media and we haven't got a clue what to do with yeah. it. We're, we're sort of, it's like a toddler playing with a hand grenade or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it looks sort of nice and shiny on the outside, but it's extremely dangerous. And we, we haven't actually worked out how best to deal with it. And we're going to take a while to catch up, I think. Yeah, yeah. So your, your first novel, Close to Home, which we talked about a little bit, was, was a big success here in the UK. Um, and in fact, as soon as I finished your second novel, I ran back and read, read the first <laughs> one, as I mentioned. Um, but the, your, your main detective and many of the smaller characters um, return yeah. from novel to novel. Why, other than the fact that everybody else loved them, why did you want to stay with those characters and write in series rather than write sort of one-off individual? That's a very good question. I mean, I didn't plan it as a series. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know if it was going to get published at all, of course, when I, when I wrote the first one. Right. I mean, it, it might yeah. have gone absolutely nowhere, in I which mean, case... Yeah, we've all been know. there, yes. Yeah, exactly. You certainly don't want to have ten books planned out of a series that never gets off the ground, right, do you? Right. Um, so I didn't have any idea about what I would do with the characters after the first one at all when I, when I fir- wrote the first one. Um, but... It was really my my um, my publisher in the UK who just said that this has got to be a series. You've mm. got to keep doing this, yeah. uh, and I had no problem with doing that because I I loved doing the first one. I loved the style of it. I loved the as we just talked about the different documents. I I was really interested in my my central character, and there was so much more a sort of unpeeling of the onion that I, that I knew I could do with yeah, him. Absolutely. So you know it was a it was a no brainer really. I mean, who's going to turn down you know a three book deal from Penguin? Right. To, to write more of these books when you love writing the first one. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so when you when you knew it was going to be a series, did you, did that make you go back and sort of make any changes in the first book so that you sort of hold things back for later on? Or another, I can tell you've written books yourself. <laughs> <laughs> That's a writer's question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the short answer is no, mm-hmm. but only by luck rather than yeah, by judgment. Yeah. In that I hadn't given too much away about Adam anyway. Right. Um, right. So I. I I definitely realised there was more there uh, because I also wanted to. I wanted the the first one to be about the the plot and not right. so much about him. Right. Yeah. Um, so he was he was a support actor really um, and, and and a necessary one because if you're going to write a book like that you have to have a, a central police team. Uh, so he had to be there, but I, I didn't want it to be entirely about him. I, I wanted it to be about. Yeah, the story. and you spend almost as much time with some other members of the team as you do with with him. Mm. And to my mind, that the main thing that distinguished him as he must be the central character is again this use of the first person yeah, yeah. Um, in, in the narrative. Well, funnily enough people seem to like that I've had lots of readers uh, who've got in touch on social media social media um, or, or whatever just saying it's really nice that it's not all about him. Yeah exactly uh, it is, it and, is, and other people it, get room to breathe and the chance to actually solve it sometimes yeah, I mean he's yeah. not always the person who comes up with the answer which yeah, again is yeah, quite many of the and in, in some cases for some of the um, you know the lower ranking officers that, that Coming, solving a clue, even one of the steps, it becomes you know sort of a significant thing in their yeah. career that it, it makes a big yeah. difference for them, which might not make as big a difference for the guy who's already yeah. in yeah. charge. Absolutely right. It, it seems to me that one of the secrets to writing a good mystery is doling out information in just the right amounts. Um, you <laughs> you, right, you right. need to always be answering <laughs> questions, but then asking asking more questions. 
how do you decide when it's time to give us a piece of information, what to tell us and when? Yes, again, a very good question. I'm, I am um, very aware of the drip feed and how you've got, you've got, to, <laughs> you've got to keep people with you, um, but you can't afford to give them too much at once. But on the other hand, you don't want them to get to the end and feel, oh, that was a cheat. She told me everything on the last two pages, right, and so right. how could I possibly have done it myself? Yeah, um, yeah. So I don't want them to feel that. I, I want them to feel which what they often do tell me they feel, which is, oh, but of course... It was yeah. there all the time. Yeah. Why yeah. didn't I realise? Yeah. And that's the, that's the, the the reaction you want from from a reader, really. Um, so, some of it I do, um, as it were, from from the beginning, working forwards, and I, I'm conscious of what I'm I'm drip feeding out. And I love to end a section on a cliffhanger because I want yeah. people to think, oh, yeah. I just must read another page. Yeah. Um, but sometimes I do it at the end. Uh, once I've resolved all of the plot mm-hmm. things as I've gone through, because that inevitably you don't have everything nailed down when you start. And then I'll go back and I'll just drop in the odd red herring or the odd little fact that doesn't appear to be significant at the time, but then it, it feeds into that moment where you say, oh, but yes, wasn't there that on page, whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah so that's, yeah. Uh, that's, that's part of the pleasure. It's like a treasure hunt. Yeah, I, I do love, I do think that the very best mystery is the one where you give them the solution on the first page, but they don't know it. You know, <laughs> yeah. uh, I feel like there's like one of my novels where I sort of where I sort of did that, where the where the final surprise is something that was, and I'm not going to tell my listeners which novel this no, is. No, You'll no, have to no, find no, out. No. Is something that was under their nose <laughs> yeah. from the very very beginning of the book. For a writer, and you're like, oh, that's yeah, what that was. You but know? For a writer, yeah. you'll know exactly what I mean. Yeah. The pleasure in being able to do that is just immense. I mean, it, yeah, <laughs> yeah, because it's much better than than you know something as you say, a piece of evidence shows up on page 390. You no, know, I know, no, I, that, I can't, yeah. I can't yeah. do that. It's, yeah. it's, it, I don't like books like that. I feel like I've been cheated, and you have to give your reader the same pleasure that you're looking for as a reader yourself. Right, so, yeah. right, right. You're you're writing obviously in a very rich vein of detective fiction. Mm-hmm. It's been around for a very long time. <laughs> I catch allusions to, to other writers mm-hmm. uh, and um, a, a little hint of noir every now and then. Yeah, what, who are, who have been your favorite? Uh, mystery writers are the ones that you feel have influenced you so many actually yeah. so many I mean no no one no one's sort of overwhelmingly um, I, I read very very widely I love crime I always have um, and I just pick things I'm a bit of a magpie I think all writers yeah. are you yeah. pick things up here and there and sometimes it's an approach and sometimes it's uh, you know it's a, a particular style or an angle that they come in at and, and the, the thing that I think is most most noticeable at the moment is the number of really good writers we've got writing at the moment. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the market is awash with fabulous stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really impressive. You know, have people like Shari Lupina, who I love and I've also met, and she, who's a really yeah. nice person, yeah. like her very much. Um, there's all sorts of, of really great writers out there, and a lot of them are women too, which yeah. is also yeah. extremely yeah. encouraging. And a lot of them are British. I mean, I think in some ways the the, there's certainly plenty of, of American crime novels, but I think it's you know it was born here, mm-hmm. and I think uh, um, you know a lot of us still think of it as sort of a, not a completely distinctly British form, but a form in which the the British writers have probably had more to do with the way it's shaped mm-hmm. than than any other um, any other country. Yeah, uh-huh. certainly a certain type of, of crime. They they're perhaps the sort of the less less bloody end. <laughs> um, yeah. It tends to be a more it feels like a more British thing. So going back to Agatha Christie, whereas of course you've got much more hard boiled. In, in America, though the two overlap yeah. a lot these days, yeah. of course. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've been going back and rereading some some Agatha Christie. I read that a lot when I was sort of you know fifteen, sixteen yeah. years old. <laughs> Me too. And it's very interesting to see you know some of them some of them feel quite dated. Mm. Some of them 
could be on the bestseller list today. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. Um, I don't know whether you've seen. They've done some interesting BBC adaptations. Yeah, they really have. Recently. It's been great. But, and they've they've uh, done them in a really interesting way, a really spiky sort yeah. of a way. They've got yeah. rid of that whole sort of cozy feel completely. I, I, right now, I'm reading Ordeal by Innocence, having yeah. seen the adaptation last year, and it's. I mean, it's almost like it was a different book. They were. You know, and, it's just. It's, yeah, it's, it's, and I think they're sort of doing um, that almost deliberately. The one with. Yeah. Um, with John Malkovich playing yeah, Poirot yeah, yeah, yeah. It was absolutely fascinating. ABC Murders, um, they did that one, and I know that book really well. And, and while there were some things about it which were clearly the book, um, other things were so different. And, and he was so different from what I expected of, uh, of, of Poirot. I mean, it was brilliant, but it yeah. wasn't quite Poirot, yeah. if you see what I mean. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's nice. I think sometimes we need those those reinterpretations to sort of mm. bring bring the originals back to life. Yeah. Um, you paint a very believable portrait of the inner workings of law enforcement. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing you didn't make all this up. No. You, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about how you, hopefully it wasn't by getting arrested or anything, but <laughs> how you found out about, about how it all works in, in the police station. There is quite a sweet story to that. Um, the very first version of Close to Home uh, that I took to uh, publishers, um, I remember going in to see my Penguin editor in the UK, and one of the first things she said was, um, Crikey, this feels so authentic. You must know so many police officers. <laughs> and I sort of looked at her and said, actually, I don't know anybody. And it, was, it had all been internet research at that stage. Yeah, yeah. Just shows you what you can find out, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so she sort of laughed and said, well, perhaps you ought to find a policeman to talk to. Uh, so we agreed that was probably a good idea. And I now have, uh, actually, uh, since then, a whole team of professional advisors, including a detective inspector, uh, and what he does and what the others do is they, they would read through at first draft stage uh, and just tell me whether I've got my procedures right. Mm-hmm. And um, funnily, actually, I just finished the first um, draft of book four and he's just read it and he was laughing on the phone <laughs> saying, I can tell you've learned a lot because I haven't had to change much in this oh, that's one, good. which yeah. is nice. Yeah. But yeah. it's things like, uh, very sort of technical things like at what point when you're dealing with a suspect is it necessary to arrest them? Right. Because right. I know you have different rules in America, yeah. but yeah. It, you know what is admissible and what isn't admissible depending on whether the person's been cautioned or not. Um, so that's something which sometimes in fiction starts to feel a bit clunky because you're having to do something which, you know, conversations developing, you don't necessarily right. want to stop it right. and do that. But I, I try to make them absolutely as close to life as I can without, you know, you know obviously that's something that would just take too long to do in fiction. But um, as far as I possibly can, I do want them to reflect real life. Well, I feel like they do it in a natural way. There's not, I never have this moment where, you know, the, the there's a style of writing that I object to that, that I call stop and lecture, you know, where, where you just, the whole book comes to a grinding halt <laughs> yep. so that you can explain to the reader, we cannot arrest this person until, yep. the, and, and yours is very much all done in context. And oh, so, well, so you know, we sort, of, we sort of figure these things out as we go along. I mean, one of the things as an American reader that is very different for me than I imagine for British readers or certainly for British readers who have been arrested um, <laughs> is all the ranks of the, of the, police inspectors and, the, and yeah. like what all these these initials mean you know yes. and you can I eventually we're able to suss it out but we just you know we have different sets of initials in our in our law yeah. enforcement yeah. and so you start to figure out well this must be the prosecutor's office and this must be this mm-hmm. and this must be yeah. um, but, but again I think it, the, the context in which they're presented means I never really felt at sea even though 
to a small extent, I'm reading in a foreign language. You know. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm very aware of that because, you, as you say, you've got this real challenge as a, as a writer between uh, trying to, to be clear to your reader but also not sort of ladling them with loads of extraneous information or making people say things in conversations they'd never say. Right. You know, right. this sort of yeah. um, information dump technique yes. where yes. You know, yeah. the reader needs to know something so they shove it into a conversation. So you end up with something that just sounds completely unnatural because yeah. people don't talk like that especially fellow professionals have their own way of talking to one another so why you don't want the jargon you certainly don't people would not spell out each other's titles no no it just wouldn't happen so it's a it's a it's a challenge that one but i think in some ways too that using the documents um allows you to you know present information Mm. in in all these different formats and so it doesn't it doesn't always have to be in dialogue although i have to say as i read your dialogue i think the, the TV adaptations are going to be great because it just oh, it you, feels gosh. very you know I can sort of just I can see those scenes playing out on on oh, the screen you, you know you. Um, but but with the, with the documentary means of storytelling you you don't have to have these sort of unnatural conversations mm. you, you have other ways of, of working information that in. has yeah. proved an absolute godsend yeah. actually because yeah. it is a it is a nice and and as you say unforced way of giving background information or something like that so you don't have you know, too much explication going on in, in, right. in the wrong right. scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You weave a great mystery, um, but your detectives and your officers, they also have lives away from their jobs. And you, yeah. we talked about this a little bit with, mm-hmm. with uh, your main character. Um, and these lives sort of overlap and intersect with their professions in sometimes surprising ways. Talk a little bit about how you interweave and balance mm-hmm. the, the professional aspect of trying to solve this crime with the personal aspect of making these real people and yes. not just stick figure yeah. police well, officers? Again, that's a good question. Um, I often write them so that we have the, the main thrust of the story, so the investigation is the first layer that goes down. Mm-hmm. Um, that may include some of the Foley sections because he's integral to that, so some of the first person narrative will probably get written at that stage, though not necessarily all of it. But the uh, what I call the domestics, so the yeah. scenes at home say... Um, DC gizzling him at home with with his little boy, uh, that gets written much later on. Um, So I can, uh, having, as it were, got the anxiety of the plot out of my head, I can actually spend a bit more time, let the story breathe a bit, and then put in the the human factor at a later stage. And also because then I know at what stage of the story I'm at, so how people might be reacting, you know. So a, a scene with him and his little boy will be very much affected by what's going on with the child that's been found in the basement, for right. example. So right. um, I, I do those scenes later, um, and, and it, it is a bit easier for me, perhaps, than it would be for other people to do that because of this very sort of modular way of telling the story. Sure. So. I can move scenes around if I need to. Yeah. Though, of course, then you have to be checked that you haven't. <laughs> oh yes! Yeah, oh yes! I know that's that. The, the devil in the detail <laughs> yeah. at that point. <laughs> um, th- there's a place I don't want to. I don't want to give this away, so I'm going to have to talk in a slightly cagey way. <laughs> but, but, you know, as far as the personal and the professional overlapping, you have a a, a member of the police department who. Spend some time with a witness. Ah, yes, that's it. That's <laughs> and very, that, I very think that was a really good way of sort of intersecting his personality yeah. with what was going on in the investigation. And then it spurs off this whole sort of yes. subplot of yeah. 
what could happen to him mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and how could it affect the investigation as well. Yes, yeah. yes. It's uh, shall we say he behaves in a rather characteristic fashion. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think everyone will know exactly what I mean once they've read it. But yes, that that um, that was something that I hadn't thought about when I was first thinking about the plot. Right. That was right. Um, one of those things that just evolved and. Uh, and he, he did something I wasn't expecting, though perhaps should have been. And that's something I'm sure you as a writer know exactly what yeah, I mean. Yeah, yeah. When I used to listen to writers when I was much younger, talking about how your characters can um, get a life of their own and start doing things you hadn't expected. I used to laugh and think, that can't possibly be yeah, true. Yeah, I mean, yeah. they're, they're, you know, they're just in your head. You know they're not real. They, the only person who can tell them what to do is you. But it does happen, doesn't it? Well, and I think it's a sign that we you've created um, a, a, a real person because then once you put him in a situation he's going to react the way the personality you've created for him makes him react even if you haven't foreseen that particular reaction you know before, when you started writing that chapter yeah. and I think this particular event that we can't talk about but that readers will find about is a good example of yes, that sort of way that plays out you know yeah. um, well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. They're all very short answer okay, questions, right? right? Just one or two words sometimes. <laughs> um, so it's our, it's our speed round, but it sort of gives us a chance to um, to learn okay. a little bit more about you. This is a bit scary. How you work. Yeah, it's, 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 so, you know, some of our some of our guests like will listen up on to multiple episodes and have all their questions planned out. Most of them don't. But don't worry, we actually have editing software, so you, know, you, you can hem and haw as much as you like. So here we go. What word do you love to work into your writing? Oh, um, dark. Dark. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Unsub. Oh gosh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's a line in the one I've, in one I've just written. The reason it just occurred to me where Adams in in um, in, the, in with his superior, the superintendent, and and who's starting to use this sort of this sort of trendy you know, yeah. sort of crime yeah. scene. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Adams, you know, Adam tells us if he says unsub, I may actually have to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> where is your favorite place to write? Um, in the kitchen, looking down the garden. Mm. Where could you never write? In a public space. Mm. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Spit infinitives. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> what was the first book you remember reading? Oh, oh um, a children's book called Anton B. Oh, gosh. <laughs> what are you reading now? I'm reading uh, My Lovely Wife by Samantha Downey. Mm -hmm. What book would you like to have written? Lord of the Rings. Oh, yes. <laughs> what sort of book would you like to write but probably never will? Well, that's a good question. Um, perhaps something much more sort of mainstream fiction. And um, I can't see me ever doing anything that isn't a mystery, but it would be nice to try. Yeah. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? I never saw that coming. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for, for doing this with us. Um, for our listeners, we're coming to you from the Pitt Rivers Museum here in Oxford. Uh, you, will, you will hear background noise of school children enjoying the shrunken heads and other various displays. <laughs> uh, and you'll understand how all that fits into Kara's work when you read her novels. Thanks very much. Thank you. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett. And the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas, and operates a new community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. 
My guest today has been Kara Hunter, the Sunday Times best-selling crime novelist of the D.I. Adam Folly novels, which are available wherever books are sold. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. In our next episode, I'll be interviewing best-selling novelist Gwendolyn Womack in front of a live audience at Book Parks in Winston-Salem. So be sure to tune back in. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Unsub. Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's a line in the one I've, the one I've just written, reason it just occurred to me, where Adam's in, in, um, in, in, with his superior, the superintendent, and, and who's starting to use this sort of, this sort of trendy, you know, yeah. sort of crime yeah. scene. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Adam's, you know, Adam tells us, if he says unsub, I may actually have to kill him. <laughs> <laughs>